Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll begin with a review of the oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Moore versus United States. This case could have a big effect on how the federal government collects revenues. Uh, our guest is Stephen Rosenthal, senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute. He researches, speaks, and writes on a range of federal income tax issues with a particular focus on business taxes. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join the conversation. And then following our discussion of the Moore case, Tori, Steve, and I will look at some of the new numbers on U.S. life expectancy and whether there may be a glimmer of hope that a government shutdown can be avoided in January. And by the way, those two things have nothing to do with one another. They're just two things we're going to talk about. <laughs> let, me, let me begin by welcoming our uh, guest this week, Stephen Rosenthal. Before joining the Urban Institute, he practiced law in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, most recently as a partner at Ropes and Gray. Uh, he was a legislation counsel with the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, where he helped draft uh, uh, tax rules for financial institutions and financial products and related areas. He is also the former chair of the taxations, uh, se taxation section of the District of Columbia Bar. So, Tori, Stephen, and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, okay, well, uh, Stephen, I'm going to refer to our guest as Stephen and our chief economist as Steve, just to uh, distinguish between the two. Um, so, Stephen, like many other tax professionals and budget watchers, uh, you've been closely tracking the Moore case uh, because it does have such broad implications on uh, what the government taxes and at, at, at issue is the constitutionality of something called the Mandatory Repatriation Tax, or the MRT, uh, that was part of the 2017 uh, tax cuts. Uh, and uh, it was designed to offset some of the revenue loss in that legislation. So it was a, a one-time tax, and we'll go into the details later, but it was, it was basically a one-time tax that was meant to get some, uh, to tax some, undistributed, shall we say, uh, income uh, from the shares of, of this foreign corporation. But, but before we get into that, I, I just want to say why a show like Facing the Future, which worries about budget issues, is interested in this case, because the Supreme Court could, in throwing out this tax, if that's what it chooses to do, undermine current and even future uh, the current and future revenue base uh, of the U.S. tax code, because a lot of a lot of provisions of the tax code share some of the attributes of this mandatory re 
repatriation tax. And a lot of tax professionals have been worried that if the court tosses this, it would have implications, not just for this. If they toss this, it might be a $350 billion revenue loss over 10 years. But if they start getting into a rationale for overturning this could, that could be used to overturn other longstanding parts of the tax code, there are estimates that you could, you could have a revenue loss over 10 years of almost $6 trillion. And that's, as they used to say, that, that now you're talking about real money. Let me, let me just begin there, because we, I, I do want to get your take on the, the issues in the case, the facts and the, and the applicable law. I, I, do you share that concern? I mean, that this is one reason to be concerned about this case is, is the implications it might have for our revenue base? Yes, Bob. I think that's a real concern. Uh, former Speaker Paul Ryan, Republican Paul Ryan, who presided over the House, in developing and passing the 2017 uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, he himself said that the court might yet blow up one third of our tax code, depending on how it handled this case. And the case itself involves what appears to be a simple question, but it has very far reaching implications. The simple question being, can Congress tax unrealized or unreceived amounts? Can a taxpayer be forced to report as income amounts that the taxpayer has not yet received? Uh, it happens a lot in our society and our economy in which there are amounts from businesses and from investments that are not distributed and we currently tax them. And this case might yet undercut uh, decades of tax rules that Congress has enacted uh, to collect taxes on those unreceived amounts. Yeah, and uh, that that seemed to be the case that the appellants, the the Moors in this case, were trying to make that uh, that that this particular tax, they say, uh, was on was not a valid income tax because it was taxing income that they had not received, and that there needs to be this so-called realization requirement. The the government. Uh, of course, takes a position that it was a perfectly valid tax under the 16th Amendment because there was income. There was income to the corporation uh, that is then Im imputed to these American owners, shareholders of the foreign corporation. I guess what they, they, they were trying to establish is that there is a quote-unquote realization uh, requirement as a constitutional matter and realization defined quite literally as you had to receive you know, cash or something uh, whereas a lot of the tax code hasn't worked that way. I mean, it, do you think that realization in that sense is a constitutional requirement? Uh, no. Um, I worked for Congress for six years, helping Congress uh, from both parties develop and draft tax legislation. And realization or the receipt of cash or income is not a prerequisite for taxation. Uh, that is the general rule. Normally, um, uh, taxpayers don't pay tax until they receive cash or property. But there are plenty of exceptions, and those exceptions exist to close loopholes and to collect taxes in a fair and efficient manner. And if Congress were limited by the U.S. Constitution and breathing fresh life into a century-old case that has largely been discredited, that dealt with 
whether or not income must be received or realized, that could yet invalidate, as I said earlier, large parts of our tax code and prevent Congress in the future from enacting uh, other taxes. Mainly the taxes at risk are our international taxes, business taxes like partnership taxation, and capital taxes, uh, investment returns. Because in those areas, uh, these markets and the structures that are involved in these businesses and investments are quite complicated. And sometimes Congress imposes tax before cash is received. Not often. Uh, that's a departure for Congress. But it does happen. And if Congress were now prohibited from doing that, it would yet upend our tax code. I want to uh, turn now to uh, Tori, who's had some experience on the Hill with uh, writing taxes and uh, arguing about them. Uh, Tori. <laughs> I, I stop it. Like I start at the 35,000 foot level and try and understand why you think Cong uh, the Supreme Court took this case. Normally, the Supreme Court doesn't hear tax cases. You know, the normal pattern for getting the Supreme Court involved doesn't really apply here in that there was no conflict in the lower court decisions. Um, the judgment in this case was really small. So I'm, I'm really curious, why do you think the Supreme Court even decided to take this case? Well, uh, you're right, Tori. Uh, there was no split in circuits. Uh, the Moors have only $15,000 at stake. Uh, I've actually offered publicly to pay them off if they would go away. <laughs> uh, there are large amounts at stake. Uh, the Moore's share of these offshore profits that had piled up, the Moore's share was very small uh, compared to the $3, th $3 trillion uh, uh, offshore profits that were piled up abroad. Uh, but it's not really even the other taxpayers who had been subject uh, to the repatriation, the mandatory repatriation tax that Bob described, uh, largely multinationals. Uh, they, by and large, were happy to pay the tax. It was part of a deal where their corporate taxes were cut, the rates were cut, and they paid a transition tax, a one-time tax on these offshore profits. But the reason for the, this, the, the case being pursued is, is because, as Bob said, uh, the question of whether unreceived income can be taxed. In this case, only $15,000 is at stake for the Moors, but there are many taxes in the code and many taxes on the horizons that could yet be affected. The Moors taxes, and the Moors are just a stalking horse for billionaire taxes, wealth taxes, and capital taxes, in my view. That's, I think, where, where this is leading is uh, the, the preemptive uh, issue about a wealth tax. But mm -hmm. uh, let's take our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Stephen Rosenthal of the Tax Policy Center about a case before the U.S. Supreme Court that could have a big effect on revenue collection for the United States. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing an important tax case 
Moore versus U.S. Uh, that was argued last week before the United States Supreme Court. And our guest is Stephen Rosenthal, senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. Tori, you were in the midst of some questions, so let me go back mm-hmm. to you. So Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, from both parties last week. And Stephen, I'm curious, what was your take uh, in listening to oral arguments? What did they reveal to you about uh, the merits of the case and and how the, the Supreme Court might rule? Well, uh, Tori, I think all nine justices, the Moore's lawyers and the government's lawyers all shared a perspective, don't mess with taxes. Uh, the government laid out how a bad decision, uh, or at least a, a, a wide speak, uh, a wide reaching decision and more could yet uh, preempt our business taxes, investment uh, taxes, loopholes could be opened, trillions of dollars could be lost. The Supreme Court justices received that message and sent it back to both the Moore's lawyers and the government's lawyers. How can we make a decision in this case without blowing up the tax code like Speaker Ryan warned about? And so listening to the arguments uh, last week, uh, my takeaway is that all the parties are looking for a narrow way to decide this case without blowing up the tax code. Having said though, the reason the case in my view got to the court was that there was an interest by a lot of conservatives to tying up Congress's hands on taxing capital, especially future taxes on billionaires. And the question to me is, uh, will the conservatives get the kind of opinion they want if the Supreme Court rules too narrowly uh, that the Moors either win or lose their $15,000? No one really cares. The question is, will the court use the Moors case as a vehicle to tie up Congress on capital taxes If they do, I don't see how they can limit uh, the reach and the damage to our code. Uh, Before going to Steve Robinson, I can't uh, resist a follow-up question there. I used to work at an appellate court. Uh, I was a law clerk and and later chief staff attorney. The use of footnotes and concurring opinions is is fascinating. And I'm wondering when you say that, if, if they do decide, well, let's take a very narrow view here and not get a justice or a couple of justices could take the opportunity to write a concurring opinion saying, now, this doesn't mean that a wealth tax, you know, if they approve the MRT, they could put in some language saying, you know, writing about uh, applica- uh, applicability or non-applicability to a future wealth tax, if that's what they wanted to talk about. Do you think there's some possibility that that, that could happen? Bob, I think, yes, uh, that will be where the play is. I expect all nine justices actually uh, to to be on the same side ruling against the Moors, uh, that the Moors complaint about being taxed on earnings that had not been distributed, I I think that will be um, readily dismissed. I don't think think there's much of an argument there. And the question then arises, um, on what basis will they be dismissed? And will the court signal, well, maybe the Moors lose, but future taxes on unreceived income, like some of the billionaire tax proposals that are out there, those are suspect. Now, mind you, uh, the conservatives uh, and the Moors who are carrying the water for the conservatives already won a, a scored a big victory. They already won a major concession. 
the government's lawyer at the argument conceded that a wealth tax, that is a, a tax on property, is a direct tax that must be apportioned. And apportionment requires that the tax is collected evenly from each state, which practically is impossible. Like if you wanted to collect a billionaire tax, you might not find any billionaires in Alabama to collect the taxes from. And so the government standing up there already made that concession. In my view, they threw Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax under the bus. And so uh, at argument, I think wealth taxes have been already set back. But the government's argument really was, this case is not about wealth taxes. We can make a concession here because we really don't want you to damage our tax code by imposing a new restriction on Congress in terms of its ability to lay and collect taxes on our behalf. Um, Steve, I want to bring you into the conversation. You've, you've yeah. talked a little bit about the road not taken. I don't know if you want to go down that road now or if you have some other <laughs> questions that you want we, to raise. We, well, we might wait for the next. OK, all right. That, 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 that that's, a, that's a teaser for the next. <laughs> resolving this issue. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just curious, you know, Tori asked, why did the court take this case? And to me, I'm just baffled because, I mean, you know, to think about it simply, if there's a U.S. corporation, we have a corporate tax. And if the U.S. corporation pays out dividends, that's taxed at the individual level. I mean, the basic issue here is we're dealing with foreign corporations, which we don't apply the U.S. corporate tax to foreign corporations. Obviously, foreign corporations earn income. So the question is, well, how do we tax foreign corporations when they earn income for U.S. citizens? And so, I mean, this issue essentially revolves around the question of a foreign corporation realizing earning income, and then how is that taxed at the U.S. level? Well, we attribute that income to the U.S. investors. So, I mean, in my mind, it's pretty open and shut that, yes, there was a foreign corporation, it realized income. And the question is, can we tax that income to the individual investors who happen to be U.S. citizens? And, you know, the argument that this is somehow to be construed as a tax on wealth or a tax on property, when clearly there's all sorts of precedent in the tax code for taxing the income of corporations to the shareholders, whether it's an S-corp or a C-corp. And so... You know, again, maybe to expand on that, but this case seems almost, you know, from my perspective, a non-issue or non-question, yet the court took it anyway. And it, it, it just seems a little baffling to me. So, so, Steve, I think your legal analysis is spot on. Uh, and I think we heard from the justices, both liberal and conservative, uh, reaching for that answer. That is, we've had in our tax code from the 1930s the current attribution of foreign earnings to US shareholders. If you go back to the 30s, there are a lot of wealthy individuals that created incorporated pocketbooks in tax havens, shifting their investment assets abroad and allowing earnings to accumulate abroad without being distributed to the US and taxed. Congress ended that practice in the 30s. It's expanded those limitations Congress has in the next 80 years. No one really questioned that Congress could do that. Structurally, that's what the Moors face. They have some earnings that have accumulated offshore, uh, a small share of earnings from one single corporation, and they're being taxed currently without the distribution of those earnings. That's been a good law, and our international tax regime rests on that approach for almost 100 years. So why did the court take a very poor vehicle to try uh, to develop more jurisprudence in this area, 
I can't tell you. Uh, the, the issue really is of the, the, the realization, can someone be taxed without receiving income? The government's ar argument is somewhat semantic in my view. Well, yes, the foreign corporation realized earnings. They just weren't distributed uh, to the uh, 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 U.S. shareholders. But, but actually, that's a question of attribution, as you correctly state, Steve. Uh, and we impute or attribute undistributed earnings uh, to U.S. shareholders in these circumstances in which otherwise there'd be areas of abuse. But frankly, it's not hard to figure out why they took this case. The conservatives, um, as, as organized a, um, an amicus writing group, eight different conservative groups, asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take on this case. The Moors petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to take on this case. A dissenting opinion in the Ninth Circuit case ruling against the Moors urged the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case, not because of $15,000, but the principle of can someone be taxed without receipt of cash? Again, the Moors are being subjected to tax on earnings that have accumulated offshore but have not been distributed. They find that objectionable. And if that principle were extended to items like billionaire taxes, then Congress could not tax billionaires before they realized their income on selling appreciated stock and other property. And that's what the Ninth Circuit dissenting opinion warned. That's what the Moors warned, that if Congress were, that's what Ada Mikas warned, that if Congress were not stopped there with the Moors, the next step would be billionaire taxes with Congress trying to tax other, other unrealized income. I think it's a poor analogy, and the Moors case was a poor vehicle to try to reach those billionaire taxes, but we are where we are. You know, it seemed that uh, the questioning from the justices would have disappointed those who took the position you just described because they really didn't jump all over that issue. They seem more inclined to, you know, limit the issue rather than take a, a broad approach. Well, um, we can't say how the court will turn court decision will turn out. I I, I think we can predict. It'll turn out along the lines Steve suggests that, hey, there were earnings that were realized abroad, and those can fairly be attributed to U.S. shareholders. But the question then is, what is the legal reasoning and the language the court uses? So, for example, support the, suppose the court gave Congress and recognizes Congress's broad authority to tax these attributed profits. The court could still, in either the majority opinion or concurring opinion or the like, could still say, well, that's okay for undistributed profits from a foreign corporation, but you can't tax a U.S. shareholder on unrealized appreciation on stock. That would be wrong by comparison. If the court took that tax, Congress would be warned off of a lot of the billionaire taxes that are now pending. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing a, a, an important tax case called Moore versus United States that was argued last week before the United States Supreme Court. Our guest is Stephen Rosenthal, Senior Fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing a tax case called Moore versus United States that could have profound effects 
on future federal revenue. Uh, oral arguments took place last week before the U.S. Supreme Court. And we are talking with Stephen Rosenthal, senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, who's been following this issue very, very closely. Uh, I wanted to, to go back to uh, Steve Robinson for an issue that, that was not really before the court. Steve, it, it was before the lower court, and you think it should have been more of a, an issue before the Supreme Court. And you've even written an issue brief on the subject. So it's a due process issue. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think certainly all of us agree that there was income realized and it therefore should be taxable to, to the investors. But the, the way that the tax is written, this mandatory repatriation tax, it applies retroactively. So any business that existed from 1986 to the present who earned income over that period of time, an investor's share of that income will be attributed to them to pay taxes on. Now, in the case of the Moors, they apparently invested in the company at the time it was started in 2005. And so they were investors throughout that period. Um, but as I understand it, the way the tax is written, if you were a shareholder in 2017, then potentially all of the income that's attributed to the corporation over the period 1986 to the present would be attributed to you based on your shareholding in 2017. So essentially you have potentially a situation where somebody who might not have been an investor throughout that period would essentially have to pay taxes retroactively on income that was earned by a corporation, but they themselves were not even a shareholder the, the entire period. And again, even if they were a shareholder the entire period, the question is, can the Congress retroactively impose taxes going back, you know, as long as 40, you know, almost nearly 40 years? I mean, there certainly are cases of retroactivity in the tax code, but generally they're limited to a year or two. So, you know, does this case, and, and I think actually Justice Kevin, I'll raise this point in, in, in the oral arguments, you know, can Congress justify going back more than a year or two? And, and in this case, they went back several decades. What, what are your thoughts on that, Stephen? Well, well Steve, I, I certainly agree with you that the due process issues would have been a stronger argument for the Moors. Now, the Moors raised due process issues as well as unrealized income issues, both at the Federal District Court and the Ninth Circuit. They lost on both of these bases. But the Moors chose only to appeal the unrealized income to the U.S. Supreme Court, leaving behind uh, the due process question. The reason they did that, in my judgment, was they wanted to win on the argument that unreceived or unrealized income cannot be taxed. That was the important issue that would preempt billionaire taxes and upend a lot of our capital taxes. And so I don't think they were particularly interested in uh, the due process issues. Now, they did raise those below, and the standard that the lower courts used, which I think is appropriate, was whether Congress had a legitimate purpose to trying to collect taxes on, on those earlier years of undistributed profits. And yes, in my judgment, and I think the Ninth Circuit and District Court said so expressly as well, that as the 2017 legislation transitioned our international taxes from a worldwide to a territorial system, a restructuring, all of these accumulated earnings amassing to $3 trillion would have been 
permanently tax-free if they hadn't been taxed at some point in time. Now, Congress, as an administrative matter, thought the easiest way would be to collect taxes at the time of the transition and not spread the taxes over some future period, which I think your piece suggested. To me, that's Congress's prerogative. That's the way Congress drafts a lot of tax rules, what's known as a so-called cutoff approach. But having said that, the Morris case is not particularly sympathetic. Uh, the Congress only reached back for them to 2005, not back to 1986. And so were this the right case to try to strike down on due process considerations, this repatriation tax, the Moors were really not the right vehicle, the right people to be challenging it. But, you know, if, if Congress can simply declare, well, we have a legislative purpose for imposing retroactive taxes, um, you know, do, does the does the court not have the right to review? You know, obviously, you could argue this wasn't the right case to make that decision. But, you know, I mean, as I understand the facts, you could have had a situation where an investor invested just in 2017, and he would be taxed on income earned by a corporation going back to 1986. And, you know, that, again, the, the due process issue versus Congress's prerogative, since Congress could collect taxes on the repatriation uh, or, the, or the unrepatriated income on a prospective basis, as opposed to a retroactive basis, that would also be Congress's prerogative. Can the court weigh in on which prerogative is violative of due process and which prerogative isn't. But we have tax rules that go back beyond 1986 to label a distribution from a corporation as a dividend or return of capital. You look to accumulated earnings and profits from 1913. And so it's, it's, this is not one of the most extreme cases, even if you had a sympathetic or more favorable taxpayer that held a corporation while earnings have been accumulated uh, from the 1980s. But again, I don't think anyone really cared about that issue because the key question in terms of preempting billionaire taxes and other capital taxes is can Congress be allowed uh, to tax unreceived amounts? And Congress has been doing so uh, for almost 100 years without challenge or at least without a loss. But the, the conservatives hope to give Congress a setback here that could be used to knock off billionaire tax in the future. I want to uh, uh, get in a final uh, question here, topic. Uh, and Tori, I'll turn to you as uh, you were on the Hill and, and actually worked a little bit on this case as it was on this law as it was being developed. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the tension between uh, and the deference courts may or should uh, give to Congress in writing tax legislation uh, and how tax legislation is developed. Tori, let me just turn to you first. Well, I, I guess that was sort of the sort of ropes in what uh, in a bigger picture way, what, what Steve was talking about just a moment. You know, we have three branches of government. We have judicial, legislative, executive. You know, Congress legislative passes laws. The executive branch enforces the laws and the Supreme Court or the, the judicial branch, you know, interprets the laws. In this case, you know, we, we've got in Moore versus the United States, we've got a Supreme Court that may or may not step on Congress's ability to pass tax legislation. And and I, I guess I'm just sort of wondering about 
what sort of conflict does it does it present when you've got one branch of government sort of muscling into the purview of another branch of government? Well, let me answer first uh, like a conservative Supreme Court justice might answer. They might say, look, uh, Congress can certainly enact tax legislation, but it's our job to determine when that tax legislation crosses constitutional bounds. And if it does, and it upends pieces of the tax code, well, that's on Congress. We in the Supreme Court, we just call balls and strikes and what's constitutional and what's not. I think that would be the best defense. Uh, The problem with that defense is, in this case, the Supreme Court is reaching out, in my view, to preempt billionaire taxes and other taxes that have never been enacted. That's quite dangerous for our code. And it could um, uh, yield all sorts of uh, unexpected consequences, which I think the justices have figured out uh, where I started, don't mess with taxes, that seemed to echo over and over and over again. Remember, Tori, you and I both uh, worked for Congress drafting tax legislation, and Congress has a lot of resources. Congress has a lot of staff. It has a lot of experience. It has a lot of expertise. Members of the public are entitled as a constitutional matter to petition the Congress. And we heard from lots of lobbyists, you and I, on tax legislation that we may have written. The Supreme Court is just nine justices, each with a few clerks who have a couple of years of experience from law school. They're not really well positioned to write tax rules. And that's my concern when they reach out to try to preempt taxes that are to come, as opposed to looking at a tax that Congress has actually enacted. Well, that's all the time we have for uh, this segment, uh, talking about the Moore versus United States case. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Stephen Rosenthal of the Tax Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Tori, Steve and I will talk about some recent developments in Washington. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are here to talk about some recent developments in Washington, just sort of a potpourri of things. Uh, Steve, you've been looking at some new life expectancy numbers and uh, showed that they're going up again after going down during the uh, COVID uh, crisis. What's, What's going on with these numbers? Well, yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to call them life expectancies. But yeah, so I mean, the headline news, so back in 2019, before the pandemic, uh, life expectancy at birth, which would be the number of years you'd be expected to live starting the year you're born, was 79 years. So the average person lived 79 years. During the pandemic, it fell to 77 in 2020. 2021, it was 76. And then, of course, this most recent uh data for 2022 was 78. So we've seen a reversal from the the decline in life expectancies that occurred during COVID. But the the reason I say it's a little bit misnomer to call it life expectancy is because these are actually a a statistic that's what's called a period life expectancy. And what that means is that if if, um, all of the deaths that occurred in 2022 at every age from zero to 100 
uh, if those that pattern of deaths were to occur in all future years, then a, a baby who was born in 2022 would expect a life expectancy of 78 years. But of course, we know that a baby who was born in 2022 won't experience the life or the death, the, you know, the rates of death that occurred in, in 2022, because that's what actually happened in 2022. So it's this sort of strange notion of applying the current rates of death to future populations and then saying that that's the life expectancy of future populations. Well, that's really not the case. I mean, you can use the deaths that occurred in 2029, um, I'm sorry, 2022, <laughs> our, our 2019, and, and make projections of what the change is over time. And you can come up with what's called a cohort life expectancy, which means that would be the the life expectancy of a person who's born using the assumption that future life expectancy will 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 improve based on historical trends. You know, the, the headlines, it's just easy to say, oh, look, life expectancy went up, it went down because of COVID, it went down, now it's going back up. But those numbers are are sort of misleading. I mean, to give you an example, back in 20, uh, sorry, 20, in 1918, back in the uh, the influenza pandemic, uh, life expectancy before the pandemic was 55, where obviously we're now you know, in the 70s, but it was 55 back then. At the height of the pandemic, life expectancy at birth fell to 39 years. And then the following year in, in 1919, after the, pan, uh, the, the Spanish flu influenza epa pandemic was over, it went back to 55. So, I mean, you can see how, you know, one-time events, uh, a, a serious pandemic in 1918 or in, in 2020, 2021, can affect the rates of death that occur in that year. But it's a mistake to take the deaths that occur in a year and project those forward and assume that, you know, future births will have the, you know, the, the same experience that occurred in, in, a, in a past year. That's just really not the right way to think about it. And so it's a little bit confusing when they talk about, oh, life expectancy went up, life expectancy went down. No, what happened is the rates of death went up and down. And to project those rates of death forward into the future is going to be misleading. And that's really what's going on. Yeah, we're not going to we're not going to have the same rate of death uh, as we had during the pandemic in uh, in all future years. So. Right. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tori, speaking of uh, things that uh, that we hope won't happen, um, the government's got new shutdown dates, um, January 19th and appropriately enough, February 2nd, which is Groundhog Day. <laughs> we do seem to go. We do seem to go through this uh, every year, every so that's year. a that's an appropriate date. Mm. Uh, but there, there was, you know, there was some confusion about whether there was a glimmer of hope on the horizon, and it gets a little bit uh, complicated. But there were some rumblings from the Freedom Caucus, which is the House Republican conservative group that was basically uh, behind the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, saying that well. Maybe they were okay with the the top line appropriations deal that McCarthy had reached with Biden back in the spring when they did the debt limit deal. Mm -hmm. Of course, sticking to that number, uh, passing appropriations at that number was something that uh, the Freedom Caucus had uh, objected to, to the point of uh, ousting uh, McCarthy. So it came as kind of a surprise when uh, when they were saying, well, you know, we realize that you probably have to take that number in order to get anything done. So there are some nuances to that. What, what do you think? Is, uh, are we 
you know, clear sailing ahead for uh, passing <laughs> appropriations or, or still some uh, swells in the water? I, I still think there are some giant swells in the water because part of that agreement on the, the top line spending numbers in the debt limit deal, it was one or more sidecar deals that you know didn't make it into the legislation, but was sort of a under the table handshake, gentleman's handshake, gentleman's agreement on some machinations underneath that, that, you know, some budget gimmicks, if you will, underneath those numbers that would allow um, more money to be spent on the non-defense category. And at the same time, the House Freedom Caucus says, well, maybe we're, we're, we're going to, we'll go with those spending caps that were written into law, into statute after all. Um, they've been pretty clear that they have no intention of abiding by any sidecar deal that Biden reached with McCarthy, because not only is McCarthy no longer the Speaker of the House, but he's not even going to be a member of Congress after the end of this year. So in 2024, he's not even going to be around. So that sort of throws the whole, you know, negotiations for fiscal year 2024 discretionary spending up in the air. To my knowledge, there's been no appreciable progress on those decisions. And as you say, uh, you know, January 19th is bearing down on us. Um, House and Senate are expected to leave for the Christmas holidays at the end of this week. Um, they haven't even be able, been able to move the ball on emergency aid for Ukraine, Israel, um, and just disaster relief. So I think the, and, and then of course, Speaker Johnson, one of his first public statements as the new Speaker of the House said, all right, I am done with continuing resolutions. There will be no more continue, no, no more short-term patches. You know, next year, next time we sit down to talk about funding the government, it's going to be, you know, for the for the duration of the of the fiscal year. You know, that that leaves us with, if you believe, if you take him at his word, that's a, that's two options for January 19th, which is they shut down the government uh, while they broker a deal because that's the only time that there's going to be enough pressure to get everybody to sit down at the table and make some compromises, you know, or they simply enact, you know, a full year continuing resolution that takes us through to, you know, September 30th of 2024 and all of those ramifications. Things are a mess. <laughs> they were a mess in the spring. They were a mess this summer and they are still a mess right now. I mean, we always talk about do nothing Congress. This one takes the cake. <laughs> well, and speaking of do nothing, I mean, another thing that has to do with money is emergency supplemental. I mean, right. uh, there's a huge backlog of uh, money, you know, for, you can start with Ukraine, but then you get into Israel, uh, natural disaster relief, border Taiwan. security, Taiwan, mm -hmm. and uh, you're way up over hundred billion, and we haven't even talked about the tax cuts that people want to enact. Uh, but but just sticking with the uh, supplemental appropriations, as of this recording, it doesn't look like they're going to get anything done this week, and we're we're pushing up against the uh, Christmas holiday, and uh, you know you emerge on the the other side. So not only do we have a crunch on normal appropriations, but on all of these emergency spending. I, I think what's really interesting uh, about the the supplemental uh, appropriations bill is that, you know, at first the House wanted to tie Israel aid to cuts to the IRS and they wanted to tie Ukraine aid to some sort of overseer. 
Um, and, and now all of that has been thrown out the door. And the key to getting Ukraine and Israel aid across the the threshold and into the White House for signature is changes in border policy. And I, and I don't mean more money for border enforcement, but I mean changes in the way we handle immigrants that cross the border illegally and surrender themselves to, to border patrol. So, you know, S- Speaker Johnson's tenure in the, the House has been very short, but he's racking up a record for being a big flip-flopper on, you know, what is it that you want? Uh, I, I remember that being a question that that I got a lot you know, working for a, a, a member of the Senate, you know, who was always trying to shape legislation. The question that always came from leadership is, what is it? What do you want? Okay. And Johnson's answers as he speaks for his Republican conference seem to keep shifting. So I, I will see where this ends up. I don't, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Well, we're going to have to guess at another week. Um, so that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to Steve and Tori for joining me. Uh, This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.